there. Welcome into Downtown the Podcast, episode 22. Is that right, Carrie Haskell? That is. We keep climbing ever higher. Crazy. Uh, I'm Rich Kimball. That's Carrie, of course, and we're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security means strength, and by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine. Two very interesting conversations with you this week from the world of entertainment. Uh, Coming up a little bit later on, veteran actor Tim Matheson, whose first role came way back in the early 60s on a Robert Young series, the first one he did after Father Knows Best. Uh, He's continued along with roles on some of the biggest hit shows of the 1960s, the landmark comedy Animal House in the late 1970s, The West Wing, and keeps very busy this day as both an actor and a director. But we start things off on this week's edition of the podcast with another actor who's achieved tremendous success on one of the most iconic television shows of all time. Frasier made its debut 25 years ago this month, and one of the key members of that cast was actress Perry Gilpin, who played the part of the producer, Roz Doyle. We had a chance to talk with Perry and look back on the making of Frasier. How are you? I am just great. Uh, although I got to the phone late, I wanted to answer it KACL. I thought it would be my only chance to do that. <laughs> Well, you call back? <laughs> no, this will be great. Thank you so much for making time for us here. Of course. I'm thrilled. I, I'm, I, I'm so happy to hear from you. Well, we just had Mark Freeman on the show yesterday who did the wonderful piece in Vanity Fair. Right. Oh, my gosh. Isn't he great? He's terrific. We've had him on. I, I, well, he did the MASH retrospective and uh, New Heart, Taxi, and every time we have him come on to talk about it, it's wonderful. He's really, um, I, I felt like I, I've, over the years I've read a lot of articles about Fraser, of course, and I just felt like he really, he made me think of so many, he, he sort of connected all the dots, that's what it is. For so many years later, for it to feel so fresh and like and, and very authentic, I, I didn't expect it to be that that way. You know. Well, it's shocking to me to think that it was twenty five years ago. Where did that time go? I don't know. <laughs> I do not know. I'm shocked too. Well, if we can, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, and and Mark points it out in his piece that uh, the chemistry uh, with Kelsey Grammer was so great. How long did it take to get to that point where you had that almost unspoken language with each other? Well, you know, I think it was one of the, the first time I've ever been asked that question, and I love it because I'm glad that you, I, I've never heard anyone talk about that. And um, I appreciate you saying that because I feel like I met him, I did the fourth to the last episode of Cheers, which was just a couple of weeks. Before it wasn't very much, very long. I mean, they they finished shooting Cheers a couple of weeks later because Jimmy had like several shows going at one time. He was trying to to finish up one episode and pre-shoot the finale, and then shoot this episode we were doing. He had so much going on, and it was fascinating to watch. And and um, I met Kelsey that week, and Kelsey and Ted and Woody and John and George. They all did this thing, and it was funny, but it, 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 they would make spitballs and throw them at you <laughs> during your scene, and you can see them. You can see them flying at me in that scene, and I, I loved that kind of thing, and I loved how naughty they all were and how much 
fun they were all having working together and, and just with anyone that came in. So I enjoyed myself a lot, but I didn't get to know him very well. I had read for Frazier, but I, I didn't want to bring that up and talk about it or anything because I thought that might make my week more less comfortable and certainly maybe his, so I didn't bring it up. But, um, but it was like, it was fun to see him work. And, you know, I've always just thought that Kelsey was such an amazing actor, even before, you know, in the nine years of Cheers that I watched him. So when he, when I, when, when we started working on Frasier, he just jumped in, you know, there was just an immediate um, thing that actors do that just sort of says, we have to create a history here. So we've got to, open ourselves up in that way so that you can believe there's some kind of a friendship or relationship here. But the cool thing about Roz and Frazier is they had really just met, too. He hadn't been there very long. So we could kind of get to know each other in real time. But what made it so great, it was one of the few relationships on that show where he was in a subordinate position. You got to tell him what to do. Well, that's... And and, and, and that's what they needed you know and that's what they i think that's what they wanted was to for him to feel completely uh like a fish out of water and um have somebody there who knew the ropes and was like going come on you got to do it this way you know yeah i I think it was fun to be able to to be the authority obviously the writing was so great on the show but i i I watch it and re-watch it because it holds up so very well, and, and I think of uh, uh, the rules of improv. I do some improv comedy, and the idea that you want to set your scene partner up to get the big laugh, and I feel like this whole ensemble is working with that same concept, that uh, you're trying to make everybody around you look good, and when everybody's doing that same thing, you all get to shine. Yeah, yeah, and you know, that was I think that was one thing that everybody was really good at, um, you know, just technically speaking, setting each other up and supporting each other and, and helping set the stage. And like Jimmy and Kelsey worked with Jimmy for a long time. And, um, he, he sort of teaches you this thing. Cause you know, you're in front of an audience and all of us, all of the cast of Frasier came to Frasier from a theater background, which is that, you know, your lines and you know, you don't mess up, but sometimes you do. And sometimes you do on stage too, but also sometimes changes come in late and it's really hard to learn it. So if Jimmy saw that you were going to blow the laugh line or blow the joke or, you know, blow the, what you were leading up to, he'd just go, no, 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 he'd make up something else. Stop. Oh my gosh, the camera does, you know, he'd, he'd save it. And then he'd give you a fresh run at it so that you could make that work the way it had been rehearsed or just in a way that would work. And it was so great because we all learned to do that, you know, for ourselves. As we saw it kind of going sideways, we could say, hold on, you know, oh, I stubbed my toe. Anything to kind of start it over, start the scene over again. And I, I think that really helped to keep it fresh was <clears throat> for the audience not to have to hear the laugh line over and over again. You know, they heard it fresh in the way, the way the writers meant for them to hear it, you know. It sounds like, though, too, there was a pretty unusual level of collaboration between the cast and the writers that they wanted your input. Yeah, they well, they, they there was a thing that we would always do after each scene during rehearsal where we they called it the powwow, and we would all just stand and talk about the scene we just rehearsed. And there was this natural thing that the 
that the, the writers would do where they would say, it's us, it's us, you know, we didn't, we didn't make that word, we need to make that word in the word, you know, and we'd say, no, I didn't play it right, you know, and there, no one blamed the other, everyone took it on themselves, and because there was just an, a huge amount of mutual respect among everybody there, especially for their ability to do what they were there to do, and, and, um, and I think that can be hard to achieve in a, in a sitcom or a t- television show because you're separate. You know, the writers are in the writer's room and the, and the actors are on the stage. And so, you know, all you had to do in these meetings was say, what about this? And the writers could say, well, we tried that, but it doesn't help us over here. And then you can talk about the domino effect of everything, you know, so that, so that then you, the actors begin to realize, oh, I bet they've, They've already tried this. They put this here for a reason, you know. And the same when the writers would say, excuse me, I just got over a cold. The writers would say the same thing. Why don't you try this? And we could say, well, we just tried it in rehearsal, but it doesn't work because of this, this, and this. And then you could sort of collaborate in that way and realize, you know, you really do need each other to come up with a solution to this one, you know. We're talking with Perry Gilpin here on Downtown, celebrating the 25th anniversary of Frasier. Uh, the show did go off the air after 11 years, and, and as viewers, we we want to assume, we want to believe that uh, the cast members are as close as their characters are on the show, but that's not always the case. But it sounds like your cast was even closer than most and have continued to remain very tight. Friends, uh, business partners in some cases, and that relationship has continued strong. Yes, and I you were you mentioned Mark Freeman who wrote the oral history for Vanity Fair and who was so much fun to talk to and he said it the best I've ever seen it and and it and it really is like that he's they're like siblings and and you know Jane and David and Kelsey and John were like siblings just like siblings that's the perfect way to put it. <laughs> Talk a little bit about uh, John Mahoney, so talented, but what was he like to work with? What was he like as a person? John was very, like, this is, uh, he quit smoking many times during the course of Frasier, <laughs> but in the really very beginning, he decided he was going to stop smoking, and he'd been given a bit lighter when he got a tank of gas at, at a gas station. So with his tank of gas, full tank of gas, somebody gave him a lighter, and he he, when he quit smoking, he gave that to Jane, and he presented her with it because he was no longer going to need it, and he wanted to uh, make sure it didn't go to waste. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> it just cracked me up because he was so frugal and so, you know, everything was just came down to don't waste anything, don't take, you know, he was so, uh, oh gosh, what is fair? I don't know what, you know, he didn't want a bunch of things and he didn't, he kept things very simple in his work and in his relationship. And it was just always so you could depend on what it was so, oh gosh, I don't have my words. Consistent is what I'm trying to think of. Mm. It was just such a consistently kind, funny, you knew what would rile him up, you knew what would, you know, calm him down, 
you knew what would excite him and what would bore him. You know, it just you could just depend on him. You know, and I and that I when you know we were at his funeral, his nieces and nephews were, um, you know, came over and talked to us, and they were like, "Did he tell you about us?" <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> yes. They wanted to know, they wanted to tell us a million stories about John, and they wanted to know what, what you know, our time, the stories from our time with him, and he, uh, you know, he was just loved, loved, loved all over, all over the place. Everywhere he went, he was loved. All right, now for the dark side of Frasier, was Moose <laughs> as big a pain to you as he apparently was to most of the cast and crew? Rich, are you going to edit me, or are you just going to let me go on and on like this? I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Tim Levine and I did a blog, and I just assumed he was going to cut my answers, and he just let me. I, I just, I'm such a talker. I have to learn to, you know, say it a little quickly. No, <laughs> no, no. This is radio. That's a good thing. Okay, good. Okay. Um, I, I love dogs, so I, you know, I, I always thought uh, that. Moose was had a great personality. He was like a salty old sailor. You know, he didn't have. <laughs> he was he was older. You know, he was thirteen when we started Fraser, and he had been rescued. And I don't think he'd had a great past. I don't think and no one really knew much about his past. So he he had that kind of personality, you know. And then I wound up adopting. He had two sons. One Enzo took over for him, and right. Then he, you know, color his hair and stuff. And then I had Moosey, who didn't want to be an actor. He just wanted to, you know, lay on the couch and eat treats. And that's what he did about 14 years. Uh, you've stayed so busy in the years uh, since Frasier went off the air. Uh, done a number of series uh, uh, starring roles and guest starring roles. You've done stage work as well. Uh, is it important to you to keep growing as an actor, even uh, having done it for quite a long time? Yeah, it is. So funny that you say that. I, I I just did this play and you know, somebody asked me how long I've been doing it. I, I when I said it I couldn't believe I was saying the number of years, but it, it never gets boring, it never uh loses its excitement to me. You know, I'll never have a job like that again and we all knew it. We all I mean, we all really appreciated what a bird nest on the ground we had with getting to do a show we were so proud of with such amazing writers and such fun cats and also everyone around us. All the writers were fun. We were close. We spent a lot of time together, even when we weren't, you know, doing the show. And and um, so we all appreciated it. But, but, there, but you have to go on. And I think we've all gone on and had other great experiences. But I hope I'm doing it like John did, like right to the very end, you know. And he did. He he was on stage until literally a matter of weeks before he passed away. And I know that that made him happy. Can you talk a little bit about the work you've done? I know it's important work to you with the Sarcoma Foundation of America. Yes, I, you know, my mom had a, a disease called lyomyosarcoma. And um, I really didn't know a lot about sarcoma then. And so I wound up meeting an amazing woman named Fran Bisco, who runs the National Breast Cancer Coalition Fund, which is 
a multi-pronged organization in Washington that works hand-in-hand with the government and with the medical community, and she's doing amazing things. And But breast cancer is not a sarcoma. Sarcomas are actually like 10% of cancer, so they're, they're very rare, and the majority of sarcomas are found in children, and um, which there's not a lot. I think at, I think there's not a lot of people living with sarcoma, just because it's such a rare disease. So it doesn't get the the attention and the awareness and the funds for research that it needs. But things are getting better, and the Sarcoma Foundation of America is certainly a great place to go if you've been diagnosed or if you have questions. And they've been working very hard for, I think, about 15 years now to um, gather, you know, the kind of information that patients can share with each other. Because I I remember I talked about this once in, in like, a a column in the back of InCell magazine. I described my mom's illness, which was biomyo, which they found in her spine, her upper spine, and they wound up removing two of her upper vertebrae. And the same thing happened, actually, with my sister. Um, my sister's living with leiomyosarcoma, so that tells you right there that that there's been improvement, you know, but when people, so this, my mom, I, I, wrote, I said this thing in this column that my mom had it in her upper spine, and, and then that they figured that it came from, you know, her reproductive organs. And so this woman wrote me a letter and said, my mother-in-law had the same exact diagnosis and they told her the same thing, but I've never been, I've never heard it or seen it anywhere else. So it's that rare, like from case to case, you know, and there are some great organizations like Wendy's Walk that help with sarcoma and help with, you know, make people aware and, and raise money for research and you know, the more people can get into contact with each other and discuss what they're going through and what their symptoms are and what their what things are working for them, the more they can, you know, that's what these great organizations are about, is just getting everybody better and getting the medical community as much information as we can. Well, we appreciate your work on that. Uh, by the way, my producer, Carrie, uh, wanted me to make sure and ask you, uh, from Ro- from Roz's perspective, what do you do to keep an annoying host in line? <laughs> oh, you have all the power, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> all he's got to do is turn that mic down, and I'm I'm done. So I That's keep telling him. That. Yeah, it can happen accidentally. Spill something, you know. <laughs> I, I'm looking through uh, some of the credits here. Did you work with our friend? Caitlin Fitzgerald on Masters of Sex? Yes, I did. I did. Which I actually, a lot of my stuff was with her. She was great. She's a, how do you know her? Well, because she's from Maine and we're based in Maine. Oh, you guys are in Maine? Yeah. I am, my friend is from uh, Louisville, Lewiston, sorry. But he, his family has this really great uh, lake house on Long Lake. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, so we went to visit him, and when we got there, we, we pulled we, we pulled up to the lake, to lake house, and we went, this is exactly what we expected it to look like. <laughs> it is exactly. And it turned out it's a craftsman 
but it was built by an architect from Pasadena, you know, where, where craftsmen originated. Wow. It's actually kind of a California lake house on the lake in Maine, but it looked completely perfect to us because that's what we were expecting the lake house to look like. But it, it's beautiful. Maine, is, we spent a weekend in Camden, and we drove all around, and you guys have, like, the best-kept secret in the country, don't you? We, we try to keep it a secret as best I'm we sorry. can. Keep the riffraff out, you know. But but you're welcome. You're welcome here anytime. Thank you so much for talking with us. Great to have you on. You are more than welcome. Thank you, Rich. That's actress Perry Gilpin. Close to Carrie's heart. Those <laughs> producers who really run the show behind the scenes and are underappreciated, underpaid, underloved. <laughs> it's me in a nutshell, isn't it? <laughs> Love you to pieces, Carrie. You know that. <laughs> uh, much more to come here on Downtown the Podcast as we talk about, well, my gosh, the making of Animal House, working on the West Wing, and much more from talented actor-director Tim Matheson. That's coming up after this quick word from our friends at Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Just over five years ago, two friends teamed up to create balanced beers that pay respect to the rich German tradition of brewing, layered with the nuance and eccentricity of modern brewing methods. And Nice Brewing Company was born, GNE. ISS. Based right in Limerick, Maine, in the foothills of the White Mountains, Dustin and Tim combine a love of beer, science, and their German heritage for truly unique brews. Whether it's the sun and shine, the nice Weiss, stouts, porters, IPAs, any of their seasonal offerings, you'll love what they've got brewing at Nysk. Uh, be sure to ask for beers from Nice at your favorite restaurant or bar, and now look for Nice cans available all over the state of Maine. Work hard, play hard, be nice. Let me tell you about some friends I know. They're kind of crazy, but you take the show. They can party to the break of dawn. They're not too high, you can't go wrong. Harder he's the latest man. Oh, indeed he was. <laughs> That's our friend Stephen Bishop, of course, doing the theme from Animal House. Great comedy that came out 40 years ago. One of the stars of that as Otter, Eric Stratton, was our next guest on the podcast, Tim Matheson, who's had a terrific career that goes all the way back to the early 1960s and includes work as both an actor and a director. Here's Tim Matheson on Downtown Podcast. So much I want to talk about with you. You know, I, I, we could go a couple hours here, but I think you probably have better things to do. But I, before we talk about your career... As an actor and director, I have to tell you, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I think you're one of the best follows on Twitter. And oh. so uh, I, I feel comfortable. Well, I feel comfortable asking this question. If the current occupant of the White House was a character in Animal House, would he be Niedermeyer? Would he be Greg Marmalade? Would he be Chip Diller? Or would he just be the back end of Dean Wormer's horse? <laughs> That's a great question. I think there's a lot of Niedermeyer in him, and 
I think that's that's pretty close to it. I think that that in the back end of the horse. Yeah, we have no question about that. Well, uh, you've had such a, a long and successful career. Am I right that the the first TV gig you got was in a Robert Young series that came after Father Knows Best? That's correct. It was called Window on Main Street, and um, it was a, uh, a an anthology series. It was basically about a writer that lived in a small town or gone back to his small town to sort of, you know, find material to write about. And, and so it was, um, you know, a different story every week about interesting characters. And it was one of those shows that didn't find its audience, got canceled, but they still made 39 episodes. That was back in mm. the day when they, that was a season, they had 39 episodes. Ever since we uh, mentioned that you were going to be on the show, it's amazing to me how many people have reached out to me and said, Ask him about Johnny Quest. So <laughs> what was that experience like? Where were you, 16 when you did that? Yeah, I think I auditioned for it when I was 15. And, um, you know, it was one of those, Just it was some audition. I went and I did it and didn't hear anything for months and then got a call that they were doing the pilot. And then we did the pilot, didn't hear anything for a month, and then heard it sold and, it was a pr perfect transition for me because it was that point where I was growing out of being a kid actor, and yet I was not a young adult actor, and I, there wasn't that many parts for me. So I, I just did a lot of you know the voice work, and I, I, I fell into it for about two, three or four or five years. And it was a really wonderful period of my life because there were such good actors who were doing it. They were all from radio back in the day and you know had been theater actors and uh tremendous tremendous and i got to work with mel blank and dawes butler and don messick who were stars in the uh june foray uh, stars in the uh, uh, animation world we've heard so many stories about uh, young actors who never made that transition successfully and and had all kinds of problems what was that transition like for you to go from child star to a older adolescent to adult actor well you know i the, i think for me i was lucky i wasn't a child star i was just sort of like the third kid through the door and you know uh i was an actor who did a day here a couple of lines there and you know i you know, I did a pilot, I would do commercial, I just would do literally almost anything that came up. And once I got sort of towards the end of my high school year, I think I did a movie called Divorce American Style with Dick Van Dyke and Debbie Reynolds. Uh, I think I was a junior becoming a senior in high school. And then I think that was it, or was I graduating? And then the next year I did uh, Yours, Mine, and Ours with Lucy, right. uh, Lucille Ball and Henry Fonda. And um, so that sort of kicked off my young adulthood acting. So that you know, in between, um, it was it was good for me to be um, doing voice work and and seeing that that was the real pro side of Hollywood. These were the, these these actors were huge celebrities within the you know community, and they worked all the time. And um, extremely talented and extremely professional, and it, it just showed me really another side of it and what it took to be an actor. And you have to really crack, practice your craft, be prepared, and uh, so it helped me bridge that gap. But I didn't have that problem to overcome where I was starring a big star in a TV show, and then all of a sudden that dries up, and you you 
sort of transition. Um, and I think I was lucky for it. The first celebrity I think I ever met in my life, I was a little kid, and James Drury came to town here to be oh, the yeah, yeah, grand yeah. marshal of a parade. And yeah, you were oh, yeah. on, what, the last season of The Virginian, right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, it was. I think I had just turned 18, 19, and uh, the um, Virginian, no, I was 19, I guess, and... and uh, it was my first series, you know, and, and it was so much fun, and they were such great guys. Drury was just the real pro, and um, Doug, uh, Doug McClure and uh, Jeanette Nolan, John McIntyre. And, and it was a, there was a whole infrastructure in Hollywood of wranglers and horsemen and stuntmen and actors that did westerns, and I, fortunately, in the sort of tail end of that era, got to work with m- many and all of them, you know. I mean, it, was, it was really fun. Well, yeah, you rolled uh, right into uh, Griff on Bonanza with that That's crew. right. Yeah, I did. And, and then um, I did um, a couple of three, two or three episodes on uh, how the West was won and the Apple Dumpling Gang rides again. You know, <laughs> so I did. I mean, and they just, they don't make shows like that anymore. They're, they're starting to make a few Westerns again. But, you know, it was just... And really, on those kinds of shows, you'd you'd work with all the same crew and 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 uh, people that you had already worked with. So it was it was like old home week. We're talking with Tim Matheson here on Downtown. Well, uh, let's move to Animal House. Eric Stratton. Is it wrong that to this day, when I meet somebody, I'm tempted to say, "Eric Stratton, Rush Chairman. Damn glad to meet you." <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the the just many many lines from that from movie from all the different characters that resonates for people, you know, uh, you know, mine's bigger. Um, <laughs> hey, you effed up, you trusted us, you know, I mean, there's so many different um, characters and, and um, memorable moments from that movie that um, it, it just, it remains a classic. And, you know, I must say that it sort of remains a part of the curriculum for all new college students. I don't think that many kids go to school without having seen Animal House or see it at least when they get there, like my kids did. Forty years ago, uh, the movie came up, but you guys had a hard time finding a college that was willing to serve as the locale, right? Yeah, nobody wanted to let them in. I mean, they, they just, um, they asked everybody, and I think this was a last resort, and, and this, the dean, who's still alive, I hear he's 95 now, um, he had turned down another movie and gotten a lot of flack for it because it was a, famous movie was the graduate and so he he just said to himself well i don't i don't know anything about reading a script so uh, he read animal house and he said well i, I can't make heads or tails of this so uh, we'll just let him shoot here when we were we were very fortunate and i think it actually helped our movie because it had a it was you know out of the mainstream it looked like an ivy but it was up in eugene oregon and you know we were um sort of under the radar, you know, as it was. And, and the, the kids, the students there were great. They were very friendly and nice to us. And um, and they all adored John Belushi, which gave us a hint of how <laughs> successful this could be if we did a, a decent movie, you know. You're, you're the third cast member from Animal House we've had on our show. Uh, Karen uh-huh. Allen and Stephen Bishop have been on with us. But, my gosh, you look at that cast. Uh, so many people, I mean, you've been in the business 
for quite a while at that point, but people like Kevin Bacon, Tom Haltz, yeah, sure. uh, my gosh, James Widows, Bruce McGill, who might be the only guy who works as much as you do these days. It's incredible. <laughs> Bruce is such a good actor, and he's very busy, and it's uh, an old buddy of mine. And I, Widows, you know, Widows has become, uh, Jamie Widows played Hoover. He's become a, a huge TV director. Right. He's, uh, does, you know, um, Mom and, and um, most of Chuck Lorre's shows. And um, so, yeah, it, it, I remember the first dinner we had when we the, all the Deltas arrived a week early, and we sat down to dinner with the night Belushi came in, and Landis and his wife were there, Deborah the Duelman, the costume designer, and all our cast. And it was we just I looked around that table and I just thought, man, oh man, this is a good group. I mean, because they were real actors. These guys, McGill was off, you know, been off Broadway and done Shakespeare, and Holtz was, you know, been in other movies and was a theater actor and Everybody, and then Belushi couldn't have been nicer and more supportive. And this was my first comedy. And Jamie Widows, he'd been on Broadway. And um, Riegert was a, an improv actor. So everybody had their chops, you know. And, and I felt a little out of, uh, at sea because I had never done a comedy before. But I must say, everybody was so supportive and, and, uh, and, and generous and, and to me, and, and uh, especially Belushi, that it just made me feel like, oh, I do know what I'm doing. So it's going to be great. Well, I'm of that age that my sense of humor was greatly shaped and warped, you might say, uh, by the National Lampoon. <laughs> I, I know you, you were a fan because you ended up buying the Lampoon for a while. Can, can you talk a little bit about one of my comedy heroes, Doug Kenny? Oh, geez. Yeah, Doug. Doug was, I, I think, the, the sung or unsung hero of, of Animal House, you know, uh, and sort of because he... He, he was the founder of the National Lampoon from the Harvard Lampoon, and um, he and a guy named Henry Beard founded it, and Henry sort of stayed off by himself, but Doug wanted to do movies, and he got together with Harold Ramis and, and uh, Chris Miller, and they wrote Animal House, and then Doug was there with Chris on location playing parts, and Doug was actually a very, he played a stork, actually has a right. couple of lines in the movie, and he's quite, you know, quite the... The presence and and just the funniest, smartest guy I think I, I think I've ever met. You know, he was wonderful. He was always very supportive and, and um, giving, and and was always there every day. And it was just kind of he was our spiritual leader. You, you know, and you wanted to make him happy with with what we were doing, but he he just was great. And and um, I saw him. I accidentally ran into him in Hawaii. The week before he died, and the weekend that Caddyshack came out, which he also wrote, and um, he was despondent because uh, Caddyshack wasn't his biggest, you know, a, a, a success as Animal House, and um, I just assured him that you know this is a great movie. It's they're not going to be two in a row like Animal House, you know. But so Animal House was a home run. This is a double or a triple, so don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, it's it's okay. But you know, Doug was um, he was also in the grips of, I think, a bit of drug use, and and uh, I think that caught up with him. And um, so we lost him on. I think he was on Kauai. He either fell or stumbled or jumped or something off of a ledge of a cliff, and and didn't survive.
We're talking with Tim Matheson. Hey, let's skip ahead to an iconic role in one of the great series of all time, Vice President John Hoynes in The uh, West Wing. Uh, is is uh, that a treat for an actor to to be able to go out there and take on those words of Aaron Sorkin and that dynamic? Oh, boy. Yeah, you know, you dream about that. I mean, every week we'd sit down and read the script at the, you know, the read-through, and you'd think, wow, this this just, you know, it doesn't get any better than this. And then the next week you'd sit down and read another script and it would just be even better, more in-depth, more intelligent, more fun, more, you know, um, complex. And, um, yeah, it was a real treat. And, and that cast was, not unlike Animal House, was one of the finest groups of people I've ever performed with. I mean, one after the other were just at the top of their game. And if you look around now, you, they still are. And um, it, it was one of those things that one of my favorite actors was John Spencer, who's gone oh, now. Yeah. But I would, you know, I was recurring. I wasn't there every week. And, and then I was off doing other things. And sometimes I'd come in and they'd combine all my material into one or two days just as a favor to get me back to where I was working. And, um, you know, I'd jump back in. And, and it, it was it's very dense material and very tricky. And you, if you didn't, if you weren't letter perfect, word, word for word, and comma, and punctuation mark perfect, they'd do another take. So it was, it was very unlike other shows. And so it was a little nervous making when you came in after you'd been away. And all I remember was whenever I had a scene with John Spencer at the beginning, I'd just look at John, I'd relax, because he was so real and so good that it just sucked you right into the scene and made you be inside the scene where you wouldn't be worried about it because you were playing the character and it would just be totally, totally reassuring and totally, you know, uh, stabilizing for me. And, um, but it was, it was a great experience. And, um, I got, I think I got nominated for two Emmys that didn't win, but right. it was, um, yeah, it was one of the one of the most wonderful experiences I've had. It's interesting. Uh, people uh, talk about a potential reboot of West Wing. Aaron Sorkin has said uh, he's not interested in that. And then that uh, I'm amazed now. I mean, I have such wonderful memories of that show. And I'm a bleeding heart liberal, but I don't see it as a as a liberal show. I see it as a yeah. hopeful show that tells us the government can actually work if people talk to each other. Where well, you right? And that's well said. I mean, it it. You know, we all knew where our politics were, but because I mean, he was a, um, it was a liberal administration, but uh, you know, they taught they never played Republicans as the villains, and and they it was uh, about the humanity of the people, right. and and so I think that it was you know it was a, a bygone era that uh, you look around now and the things that these guys are doing. Uh, from, from the Senate to the Congress and to the Repu House of Representatives on. Um, it's just shameful, you know, that uh, they, they've forgotten their mandate is to uh, protect and defend the Constitution and, and support the people of the United States. I mean, it's, but they're, they get lost in their political agendas. Uh, you've spent a lot of time in the last several years directing a, a number of shows, Psych, Criminal Minds, A Person <laughs> of Interest. Does it... Uh, does it give you an added advantage to have the acting experience uh, when you get behind the camera? Yeah, I think so. I mean, because I, you know, you're sort of there as a coach, uh, you know, and if they're, you know, if, 
and, and you're just giving them the objective opinion, you know, that, okay, you can get a laugh here, you can do this there. If you do, if you stop here, give it a pause, you know, and, do, and, and it's, I'm not there to teach anybody how to do it, and I'm not there to, you know, um, I just remember as an actor, I'd be in certain shows or movies, and I would have, you know, remember, I'd look back after it was done and go, I really nailed that character. And then if I go and see the show, it was like, oh, it, it didn't really look like it was that good, you know, because of the placement of the camera, the way it was directed. And then I remember in certain movies, I'd say, ah, I didn't really nail it. But then you go look at the movie because it was so well directed, the camera was in the right place, you'd look better than you did, uh, you had performed. So I realized it's the director. And I just was, the, I, you know, when I direct, I'm just there to make the actors look as good as they can and, and, and make the characters as multidimensional as possible and deliver what the, the, the author wanted, you know. And, and um, so, yeah, sometimes actors get that, sometimes they don't, you know. And so and, and there we're a delicate crowd to deal with, so you have to, <laughs> you have to be politic about it. And, and, um, but it's so much fun. I mean, it's, it's so much fun being behind the camera. I, I just love it. And you worked uh, both as a director and uh, were a cast member with friend of our show, Bruce Campbell, on Burn Notice. Ah, I have to think that was an enjoyable experience working with him. Yes, yes. And you know what? I mean, because working with him and Jeffrey Donovan, they're both such talented actors and good directors, too, that whenever I do a scene, I'd look at him and say, what do you think? We do it again? Do it? What do you think? And it was so, it was like, we were all on the same page and we were all excited about doing that show. And, and they were so great in that show. And, uh, um, yeah, dead Larry was, <laughs> was one of my favorite characters. I think, uh, you played Ronald Reagan in killing Reagan. Uh, was, was there, uh, an effort by you to make sure you, uh, you always try to get it right, but even more so to get it right when this is a guy whose politics you didn't agree with necessarily. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I studied as much about him as I could. I was constantly reading books about and of and by him, um, looking at clips uh, of his speeches and his debates and uh, his press conferences and et cetera. And, and then I just, but I remembered when I had played JFK in a miniseries with um, Joanne Wally and, uh, uh, called Jackie O, I think it was, or Jackie Onassis. And I I got so caught up in trying to sound and behave like JFK that I didn't think the performance was as multidimensional as I would have wanted it to be. I was more concentrated on on just the accent and the sound of his voice and stuff. So with this, I, I decided I'd, I'd work as hard as and much as I could, getting his accent and his the vocal timber and all that. And then I just let go of it. And um, and I I felt it worked to a greater degree because really what we as actors do is try and illuminate the who the what the soul and the heart of the character is, and that's what I went for, and and it, it felt better to me, and when and I thought it it worked better for me, and the, the response I've gotten from it was you know extremely positive, and and so I think that the, uh, just that slight difference in approach made me happier as an actor for sure. Um, Tim, you've talked in the past a little bit about how working with Kurt Russell influenced your thinking about the phases of a showbiz career 
and mm-hmm. the need to keep finding ways to keep that fresh. Uh, does that become hotter or more simple as you, your contri- career continues on? It's always hard. Um, I always used to joke that when I was a director and, and I'm a director and an actor, so I've got two careers that people are trying to keep me unemployed in you know, <laughs> constantly. Um, you know, but th- there was also another thing that Kurt said I thought was was really, he, you know, he was he's just such a great guy, and he you know was a former athlete and a uh, great skier and hockey player and you know um, an all around good guy is that he once told me we were in Hawaii. We were doing a, um, an episode of Hawaii Five-0 together after we had done the quest. And we both said, hey, let's go to Hawaii and do this together. It'll be fun. And we were, I remember we were jogging at the beach. We were staying at the same hotel. We were jogging at the beach. And, and uh, we were doing um, laps uh, in the sand, you know, run up, to, run up to the beach chair and then turn around and run back 100 yards and then back 100 yards and back and forth. And... He just said one thing to me that I, I've never forgotten as, as an athlete. He said, always sprint the last lap the hardest. No matter what you do when you're running, when I, he's, what, this is what I do. When, I, when you're running, 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 whatever my last lap is, my last leg is, I'll just flat out run that as hard as I can. I give it all in the last one. And it, it, you know, it, it sort of resonated for me because that's what a professional athlete has to do. You always have to have a little something in reserve, and then you have to just – and then leave it all on the field, you know, and I think that it, it, that also speaks well about how you approach your career and how you approach your day's work and, and things like that. You know, there's a lot of sort of really deeper thought going on for athletics and for any kind of craft that you, you're involved in. And, and uh, so I must say that, um, you know, just, just hanging with Kurt, you learn something new every day just to, <laughs> And just to enjoy yourself while you're doing it, too. That was the key. That's great advice right there. It, it, I was thinking of this the other night watching the Emmys. It's for consumers of television. These are pretty heady times because there are so many platforms now with cable, with streaming services. What about for actors and directors? Does it provide more opportunities? Or is it easy to get lost in the crowd when there's so much out there? I don't, you know, I don't know. I think that... There are a lot of more opportunities. What what I think where you can get lost is you get into different different sort of eras and phases of your career, and you get into certain different age groups, you know. And some are there's more parts, and sometimes there's less parts. I find as I get older, that, you know, the parts change, and the the challenges are, aren't there, and uh, sometimes. But um, I find that uh, it, it's it's home to me to be on a set and. It's. I grew up and and you know through thick and thin and good times and bad times. That's been the place I've always gone to. And um, the crew and the other actors, they're my family, and and so it's it's always been a place of comfort and solace for me and um, and fun. And so um, you know, and you never as an actor, you never quite know what's next in line. So it's just in many ways like sports. You just got to keep yourself in game shape. And then you get, you know, you get a call and they say, come on up, you're going to the bigs, you know. So who <laughs> knows? You never know what's going to happen. So you just got to go with it. Tim, thank you so much. I really have enjoyed your work through the years and uh, so good to talk with you. Thanks for visiting with us today. Rich, thank you very much. Great to talk to you. Lots of good stuff there. Tim Matheson talking with us here. 
on Downtown the Podcast. What a fun conversation. Thanks to Tim and thanks to actress Perry Gilpin who joined us this week. And thanks to you as well. Spread the word. Tell your friends. Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't or they haven't already. Join us every week. For producer Kerry Haskell, I'm Rich Kimball. We remind you, the podcast is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine.